100 feet tall. These people are pygmies. It's one of the most anticipated TV shows of the year. I got done a huge deal. I got the election. The return of HBO's succession. It's like if Santa Claus was a hitman. For its final season. Excited to get into this knife fight. The scene is set for an epic face-off between media mogul Logan Roy and his children, eager to topple it. You have to be a killer. Now, we talk with the show's star, actor Brian Cox, about playing the F-bomb-hurling CEO. Fuck off! His impressive career from stage to screen. And what's his next act once Logan Roy's story ends? We have two things in common. Do I get a hint? I find cooking really hard. I find it really stressful. Do you feel your life is in danger? And the love of my mother is what brought me here. What was the worst investment? Oh, there's a long list of really bad ones. Brian Cox, welcome. I am delighted to meet you and get the chance to talk with you. It's very nice to be here. You have had, I have to say, I'm quite astonished by it, a long and distinguished career, more than 200 work, uh, movies and TV shows, obviously countless plays. How does it feel to get the role that, I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, that you're going to, likely to be most remembered for, Logan Roy, in your seventies, <laughs> it's kind of something I've been trying to avoid. <laughs> I've been trying to avoid, uh, you know, because you know the, you get all these actors and they're identified with certain roles, and I think, oh, I've done that too badly. I've I've just kept going, and I haven't been. And then finally, you you get a gift, and it is a gift. It's a great, great. Role. It's one of the truly great roles, and you think, well. Couldn't avoid it any longer. <laughs> there are worse problems to oh, have. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, I confess, I'm a huge fan of Succession. I'm a huge fan of your part in it. You're going to have to put up with me okay. because I'm going to ask you, take advantage of this situation, ask you a lot of Logan Roy questions. Okay, okay. When we but you have to understand, I can only talk about so much because of... I understand. <laughs> well, all right, this is going to press those boundaries. Um, when we last saw you and your family, you were in the process of selling your media empire, much to the distress of your children. Mm -hmm. Here you are. You need all of us. You need a supermajority, and we can kill it. And we will. You're playing toy fucking soldiers. Go on. Fuck off. I have you beat, you morons. Well. No, because you need a supermajority. Oh, well, no, because I need a supermajority. <laughs> Brian, are you really going to sell Waystar Royco? You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> uh, we'll see. You know, uh, it's, it's an option. <laughs> it's an option. Yeah, and um, Logan, you know, he's very sensible because he always tends to look at his options, even though he gets churlish and bad-tempered, but he kind of knows what he's doing. In your autobiography, which came out last year, which is fascinating, called Putting the Rabbit in the Hat, you talk about working in the 70s with a great British director, Lindsay Anderson. Absolutely. And you talk at one point about him giving you a note in a specific scene where he says, don't just do something, stand there. Yeah. And 
there's no better example of that than the, than the uh, you can see, I'm a fan here, the finale of season two, when you think that your son Kendall is going to take the fall for your misdeeds and you watch his news conference on television. Here you are. This is the day his reign ends. I'll be providing the documents and can answer any questions you may have in the coming days. Thank you very much. Mr. Roy, do you have anything to say to the victims of these crimes? Did your father know you were making this statement today? You do nothing, but there's so much in that because... Oh, you tell me if I'm overreading into it, because on the one hand, you're clearly ticked off that mm-hmm. he's betrayed you. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you kind of admire the fact that he's sticking it to you. Yeah, he's got balls. Uh, I, I think what's important, and I've always said this, because you know, I also teach from time to time about acting. I think it's important, the element of mystery, the element of what makes the audience sit forward that makes the audience go that way. What is he doing? What is happening? And I think it's, it's where you go like that and the audience goes towards you. You know, because so much of the time with Logan, because he's so temperamental and, he, and he's, uh, you know, kind of uh, vociferous and vocal about certain things. But the thing about, for me, that's important in acting is to find what the mystery is, what the secret is. It's my secret. I don't share it. But the audience can see there's something going on here. What's going on? And there's, you know, there's a whole string of things that you could say are going on at the same time. Calculating, yes, he's sitting there. He's admiring of his son. He's also thinking, this kid thinks he's going to do something. I don't think so. You know, there's, there's all kinds of kind of areas that he's, he's in, in, in a very short space of time. And within seconds... He's, he's, he's visiting. Now, I'm curious, as an actor, in that scene, where you're essentially making Lindsay Anderson very proud and doing nothing, yeah, yeah. are you thinking all those thoughts? All the time. That's absolutely right. You, know, you are. You've got, you, you keep the line going, you know, because you've got your intention going all the way through. And the fact that he is shocked, uh, above, apart from anything else, but also... He, got, he, he knows it's not unexpected, given the, where the situation is going to. So at the same time, he's shocked. And, I, and there is an element of, there is a tiny element of pride, of saying, oh, finally, the kid's standing on his own two feet. You know, finally, he's growing up. I think it's fair to say that most people think that, that Logan Roy and the Roys are based on Rupert Murdoch mm. and his family, which I know you reject. Yeah, I reject it entirely. But as someone who spent 18 years working at Fox, I want to put up a scene which I think cuts a little close to the bone on that subject. Okay. Take a look. I hate to say this because I love you, but you're kind of evil. Don't talk about things you don't understand. Well, you're smart. But what you've done is you've you've monetized all the fucking... the, the... American resentments of class and race. And I and thought I was just telling folks the weather. You've turned black bile into silver dollars. Oh, you just noticed, did you? Yeah, maybe I did. 
You don't hear any echoes of the Murdochs there? Well, there's the echo of anybody who is in that position, uh, a position where they're running an empire. And the big difference between Murdoch and, and Logan is Logan created his empire. You know, Murdoch's empire was already in place, and he just took he, it he forward. Inherited he inherited a newspaper. Inherited it. From his, yeah. from his father. And I, and I think that Logan is in many ways saying, these are my rules, and these are what I do. But there's also, again, the mystery element is where is Logan coming from? And he's actually coming from somewhere, I think, a place of profound disappointment and profound disappointment in the human experiment. I think he feels very, very badly let down. It's certainly, if you, 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 throughout the whole show, we've seen scars on his back. We've seen all of the stuff that's gone. And it's never, it's, you know, the genius of Jesse Armstrong and the writers is they don't expose any of that. They just, that's a color that's there. It's for us to fill in those elements, to actually create that inner world, as it were. And that's, I think, precisely what's happening in that scene, where his son says he's evil. You know, Logan doesn't think he's evil. That's a view. It's not a condition. You know, that's, you know, and that, and of course, naturally, Kendall's going to say that because there's an element of bias, because he's felt that he's not been treated properly. But then Logan also recognizes what is nakedly ambitious about Kendall and not particularly attractive. <laughs> and also, it, it, you know, Kendall is playing the moral card and, and Logan is saying, get off your high horse. That's right. And, uh, and in Logan's, you know, I think Logan believes that morality has collapsed a long, long time ago. So he doesn't feel that he's been particularly moral or even immoral. He thinks it's gone beyond that. I, I, this brings me to a quotation in your book as you're describing Logan, which frankly surprises me, and I want to put it up on the screen. You describe succession this way. It's about Logan Roy trying to teach his spoiled, entitled children the value of hard work, teaching them in a way that is not always, hardly ever, moral or ethical, but teaching them nonetheless because he wants the best for them. I'm sure that's how Logan sees himself, that he wants the best for them. I don't think that's what, <laughs> I don't think that's what you're doing at all. It seems to me he's undercutting them at every point and trying to ensure that there's no succession. Oh, no, he, he definitely wants a succession. But he's trying to see who's the person who's going to step up to the mark. But doesn't he cut all of them at the knees every time? He's, well, he's, he, he, he's been cut at the knees. That's what made him the man he is. He knows about being cut at the knees. He's had that experience. And that just makes you tougher. And it makes you more, it conditions you in a way that, is, um, that makes you survive in a world which is getting, as he, in his view, more and more disappointing. I'm, I'm curious about this because I think you're more sympathetic to Logan than I am or the average viewer is. I like Logan. I'm very entertained by it, but I don't think he's uh, as sympathetic a character as you do. And I wonder. I don't think he's sympathetic. Don't get me wrong. I, there's nothing. Uh, he doesn't go in for sympathy. That's not what he's about. Sympathy is a sort of dis distraction. He's not sympathetic. Definitely not sympathetic. And he can't be sympathetic because of who, what his intention is in terms of his 
company. But my guess, my question is this. If you're playing a character, mm. do you, in effect, have to side with and rationalize him? Do you have to be, well, you, put yourself in his mind well, you, rather well, than think, this guy's a stinker, but the, I'll play him the, anyway? The rule, I think one of the rules of acting is, that, and it's true, and a great, great writers do this as well, is you don't judge your characters. You present them in a way, but you're, you're not judging them. And I think you cannot go into a, a situation where you judge. I mean, I can see clearly what's wrong with Logan. I, I understand that aspect. And it's what's wrong with Logan that makes Logan what he is. You know, I mean, he's flawed, ridiculously flawed. He's a misanthrope. He's a, com he's a very, very unhappy man. He cannot create, he, he cannot form relationships because of his background, because of what has happened to him. He is a product of his background. And that is what you have to put into place in order to create the thing you see on the screen. This week on The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Kara Swisher and I spoke before a live audience of students and professors at the Sign Institute of Policy and Politics at American University. The former tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal is on a massive book tour. Her memoir is titled Burn Book, A Tech Love Story. It's not the tech that's the problem. It's the people manipulating the tech. So I guess you could say I'm an activist. I'm an activist for unaccountable power, not being unaccountable. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish on Spotify. Last question, and then I promise to move on to the rest of your life. <laughs> you say in the book that an actor can own a line, mm. and after he says it, nobody else can really ever say it again. Yeah. Your line is, and I'd rather have you say it than me. Fuck off. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How did that come about? Was that yours? Was that the writer's? No, that was, that started, I, I don't know how it started. I think it was uh, Jesse, I think it was the writing, certainly the writing, you know, it was the writing that, but, but then I think it, it kind of envisaged its way through the whole show, you know. I, I don't know if it was something that was meant as a theme, but it's become something, you know, I mean, people ask me to tell them to fuck off all the time. You know, I, I remember, I remember I was doing a play. I was playing LBJ at uh, the Le President Lyndon Johnson. President Lyndon right. Johnson. Uh, I I would come out the show, and I would come out after the performance, and there would be a, there was a, and this was the first time it happened. There was a young couple there. I mean, she was about seventeen, and her boyfriend was probably about the same age, and they had the device, and they and they came up to me and they said, "Mr. Cox, can you please tell us to fuck off?" <laughs> and I thought. The world truly is crazy. That really, con that really convinced me that we're in such a I'm mess. I'm not so sure. I kind of hope that before this interview is over, you'll say it to me. <laughs> <laughs> this is what is so astonishing. You know, so many people want to be told to be fuck off, to fuck off. And actually, it's the easiest thing in the world to say. Yes, quite happily, I'll tell you to fuck off. Just fuck off. <laughs> But I have to say, I don't think in the <laughs> CNN studio they've ever have said that word that often. All right. Uh, exactly. I want to you share some fascinating insights about acting in your book. You say there are no big or small parts. There are just short and long parts. You, you say do your job and move on. And actors are desperately insecure. Yeah. It, it, do people in your business line of work tend to inflate? what it is you do for a living? Oh, no, I think we, I mean, it's a hard question, that. 
we possibly do out of our own vanity. Yeah, maybe we, we overinflate it. But I also think, I go back to what the intention of acting is, what the intention of the theater is. And Shakespeare says it better than anybody. He talks about holding the mirror up to nature. And that's our job. That's what we have to do in every aspect, that we have to reflect what's going on in, our, in life. And, you know, the great actors are the most human. Like Tracy, to me, is one of the great... Spencer screen, Tracy. Yes. Spencer Tracy is the greatest screen actor of all time. I can watch him endlessly. He's also naughty, by the way, but because I've, I've just... I've, I'm now getting his technique because I've become a, a Tracy watcher. And, but he's so gifted and he's so true. He's always true. And, and, he, and he deals with that incredible truth, which becomes amazingly theatrical, whereas other actors are theatrical without being true. Tracy is always true. And he was a big influence on me in how you direct yourself as an actor. You, you say in the book that the key to good acting is not to show the audience, but to share with the share audience. Share the audience and let the audience discover. This is your idea about coming forward. Being, yeah, exactly. Like we're, we're co-conspirators in That's this right. effort. And allowing the audience that intimacy with you, intimacy with the characters. And I think that's why Logan really has become very successful. You know, uh, you know, it's a kind of time and tide that you come to a role suddenly that you've, you know, you've, I've, I've had a great career, don't get me wrong, I've had the best career that I can imagine. I couldn't imagine it any better. But then you come to a role like that, which is so kind of archetypal in many ways, and yet you've got to kind of deconstruct the archetype to be who he is, what he is, where he comes from, what his fears are. You never see his fears. And that's why when his son comes with moral statements like you're evil, well, the truth is, yeah, we've seen a lot of evil people in the world, but you go, oh, did they start off evil? Did they start off in that way? How do you get to that point where somebody regards you as evil? How do you get to that point where your, your disappointment in humanity has reached the... And clearly, that's the one thing that Logan and I have in common because we're at an age now where we feel, Jesus, well, sorry, I have to say it, what a fuck-up life is. <laughs> you know, what an absolute fuck-up it is. Well, how can you say that? You've had a blessed life. Yeah, I know, but we're only at a state of evolution. We human beings are at a kind of point now where, we're, where all kinds of things are happening right. that we cannot deal with, we don't know how to deal with, because everything has become so overwhelming for us. But we are also at a point of our evolution. We haven't got there yet. We're still traveling. And that's what the theater is about. That's why I believe the theater is the one true church, because it does hold the mirror up to nature. It's, this is where we are now, folks. We haven't moved very far. Well, let's uh, go to church a little bit. You played Hannibal Lecter in the movie Manhunter before Anthony Hopkins played him in The Silence of the Lambs. Here you are. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file in this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. But you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. You say there were two big differences between you and Anthony Hopkins. He made a lot more money <laughs> playing did. Hannibal Lecter than you did. And you say he played him crazy and you played Lecter insane. 
Yeah. What's the difference? Well, I mean, I, you know, that's, uh, I have to be careful about that because I, I so admired Tony as an actor and his, his sense of theatricality is superb and his bravery is superb. I, again, I have that thing of letting the audience come to me rather than go to them. I've learned that. I mean, I've learned that because when I was young, I was very pyrotechnical as an actor. And I just decided that as I got better, that, and especially because I was, I was such a movie buff, I realized I had to be more, let that thing where the audience come to you as opposed to you pushing yourself at the audience. And Tony, because he has an extraordinary theatrical imagination, I mean, really remarkable. I think he's, he is one of our great actors, with, unquestionably. But his route was a different route. And, and I think that's horses for courses. You know, there are different routes and they're as valid route as the route that I've taken. You know, I did play him clearly insane because he's got no moral compass. And of course, one of the persons I looked at when I was playing him was uh, Ted Bundy. And Ted Bundy, a real killer. He was a real killer. And Ted Bundy was fascinating because he was charismatic. He, had, he could have been in politics. He could have done anything. But he had this flaw. You know, he was a psychopath. You know, I'm mildly psychotic as well. You also have, and I don't want in any way diminish it, a, a tremendous career in classic plays. And we have a clip of you playing the Duke of Burgundy to Sir Lawrence Olivier oh my God. as King Lear. <laughs> Royal Lear, give that portion which you yourself proposed. And here I take Cordelia by the hand, Duchess of Burgundy. Nothing. I've sworn. I'm firm. I am sorry, then, you have so lost a father that you must lose a husband. You say you found your bliss on the stage. Yeah. What does that mean? That was a kind of major role for me, playing that role, because it was unlike any role I'd ever played, because uh, it was, again, a role of where the audience really, you know, he was such a hidden character. But it opened up a whole other potential for me because I always thought acting was, you know, a little bit, in my naivety, front foot. You know, I mean, I'd seen great actors at work, Nicole Williamson, uh, Peter O'Toole, you know, and they have this great front foot energy. And I kind of, as we all do, emulate, you know, like a whole generation of actors emulated Larry and Tony as well, emulated because Larry was such a, an astonishing... Larry, of course. Larry Olivia. Was Lawrence Olivia. Lawrence Olivia, yeah. Olivia yeah. But yes. He was such an astonishing individual that you couldn't get around him. He was amazing. But he did the best. He gave me the best advice ever. He asked me if I wanted to come to the National. I said, oh, yeah, sure. And then he, and he said, what? And I said, yeah, no, I've been asked, you know, to go to Birmingham Rep. He said, what? He said, well, I've been asked to go and I've been asked to play a series of parts. He said, then don't come here. Go there. He said, you don't want to come here. He said, this is an extraordinary opportunity for you as a young actor. I mean, if you come here, you'll be understudying and it'll be frustrating. Go there and, you know, and earn your spurs. Put Le the work in. Learn your craft. Learn the craft. And it was the best advice ever. Talking about the craft, you say that voiceover work... Mm -hmm is your passion. Yeah. And here you are doing with just as committed, just as effective as anything else, a commercial for McDonald's. Yeah. Oh, here you are. <laughs> you could count how many sesame seeds there are on top of the hot 
and deliciously juicy quarter pounder. Or you could just eat them. The hottest, juiciest quarter pounder yet. It's perfect. Made perfecter. <laughs> so I, I have two reactions. This is a shock. I never imagined I'd be seeing this. <laughs> so, so first of all, you're very good. I want to eat that hamburger. You make me want to eat it. But is there never a thought, I'm Brian Cox. This is beneath me. Oh, no. No, I don't believe in a lot. I'm an egalitarian. I, you know, I know this, this is what I loved about this country. It's, unfortunately, it's not as egalitarian as it's supposed to be, but it's not. But I, that's what attracted me about America. You know, I, I don't believe that anything's beneath me. You know, I believe that it's, you know, we, that we follow our mercenary calling and draw our wages. You know, <laughs> it's a mercenary calling. And sometimes we play King Lear or Titus Andronicus or Bach or Churchill, you know, those great roles. And then... The opposite is McDonald's and give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, I love doing McDonald's. I enjoy it because it's funny. It's witty. And the, and the copywriters are doing a great job. They, it's, it's one of the wittiest things there are. And that's why I love doing it. I love that challenge. You grew up in Dundee, Scotland, in, in real poverty. <coughs> Your dad died when you were eight years old. Your mom had mental health issues. When you were 14, you joined a repertory company, and sometimes, you say, you would sleep in a little nook under the stage. Yeah. Uh, did all of that hardship help make you the man you are today, or could you just as soon have done without the Charles Dickens childhood? I, your life is your life, you know. I mean, to lose one's dad at the age of eight is awful for anybody. Uh, to having a mother have a series of nervous breakdowns because of she felt guilty because she felt my dad was incredibly generous and my mother's great cry was charity begins at home so there was a conflict already in, in, in there and they were not having a good time at that point just literally before he died in fact my mother at one point ran away she couldn't cope and you know and, and she was thwarted I mean, I discovered recently uh, a thing that my mom wrote about my dad on, on the day of his funeral. And it was a beautiful, exquisite piece of writing. And I realized that she was a woman of talent, but she had no way of exercising that talent. But I, the irony was, um, Chris, the irony was I never felt it. I didn't feel I was in a bad place. I felt I was heartbroken. But I didn't feel that I was, I, I, I just thought, well, I've got to deal with it. I've got to cope, you know. I mean, my coping mechanism, I had no idea existed until all that happened to me. And I just got on with it. And my education was a disaster, you know. But I knew what I wanted to do. I always knew what I wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to be an actor. You, you say you just got on with it. And yet it does seem to have left scars because in a recent TV series, you said you still fear that it could all be taken away. Oh, no, no, my, my fear of poverty is, I mean, I'm a human being, you know, there will be scars, but you don't pick at your scars. You just go, well, they'll heal and they'll be leave marks, but, you know, they'll leave traces. I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I try to live in the present rather than the past. And, you know, but occasionally, you know, it's like fear of heights. I don't have a fear of heights, but it's like, uh, I remember my wife years and years ago when we were in Mexico running up this one of these pyramids, sort of doing it, and then she got up and she panicked because she, she got a vertigo, and I had to get her down. But she did it spontaneously. 
So we don't know. We never know how we're going to react to certain things. And you don't know that certain things are there that you forget about. And one of them was that fear. Yeah. So to speak, to deal in the present and the future, you have made it very clear that when Logan Roy's story ends, your career doesn't end. You say the only way you see this ending is in a pine box. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's a stop on the highway. It's been a great highway, by the way. But it's a stop. It's an, and it's a wonderful stop. I don't in any way... I would never degrade it. It's been a fantastic time. I mean, one of the best times, but I'm going on. I'm going to direct my first movie, which I'm doing, which is my love letter. Well, our love letter. The writer and I were both Scots. It's a love letter to Scotland. And then I'm going to do Bach, in a play about Bach written by a friend of mine. And then in January of 2024, I'm going to do a play that I've wanted to do for years, which is Long Day's Journey Into Night. So I'm going to play James Tyrone. And I'm really looking forward to it. So I'm going to go back to the theatre. And I feel that I, I need to get back to the theatre because I need to know if that, those muscles are still working or not. I suspect they're working just fine. Brian Cox, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed this so much. Good, good. The long-awaited season four of Succession premieres on Sunday, March 26th on HBO. You can also find it streaming on HBO Max. And yes... The Wallace family will be gathered around the television to follow the misadventures of Logan Roy and his children. Thank you for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next.